And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day, though there is a great and sad and worrisome focus, not on the election that is coming up, which is clearly going in a Republican direction. The uh, odds right now are about 50-50 for Republicans gaining control of the Senate. That, according to all the sources, and about 80% chance that Republicans gain control of the House. Uh, that means divided government, again, which has been sort of the norm in American life. It's been the norm in American life uh, since the uh, year 1994, really. And uh, we're going to be getting back to that because even if the Republicans do win the Senate as well, They'll have control of Congress, but uh, there is that guy in the White House who is busy campaigning and denying reality in so many ways, denying the economic reality that many Americans face, denying the realities of crime, which is a huge issue for Republicans, and denying the reality that uh, his party is very unlikely to win. It's very unlikely certainly to win control of the House. Uh, they will have maintained their control of the House for a grand total of four years. They won it in 2018 uh, in the first midterm election of uh, Donald J. Trump. And uh, uh, Trump lost 43 seats, the Republicans did then. And now the the verdict appears to be the Democrats are likely to lose between 20 and 25 seats. We will talk about that, but people are also talking about political violence. There is a fascinating piece in, uh, and it's a long piece, in uh, Politico today. And uh, it says, The Troubling Future of Political Violence in America. And it's by Ryan Lizza. And... Uh, Lizza says that even though it was Halloween, two political extremists were unmasked yesterday, one on each coast. What they said tells us a lot about the future of political violence in America. In Washington, at the Oath Keeper trial, Graydon Young, the first Oath Keeper to plead guilty to charges related to storming Congress on January 6th, broke down in tears as he apologized for his role. I guess I was acting like a traitor against my own government, he said. And this is actually important. And uh, it, it is important that for somebody like that who has pled guilty, he is not acknowledging his guilt as a means of getting a short sentence. He's going to get a long and a serious sentence that is guaranteed. But uh, they repeat on this that in San Francisco, while this was going on in Washington, an FBI agent who specializes in investigations of domestic terrorism uh, filed the criminal complaint against David DePap, in uh, which we learned the horrific details of the attack on Paul Pelosi. We tend to think of the Oath Keepers and groups like it, Politico writes, as the face of political extremism and violence in America, but domestic political terrorists are increasingly more like the PAP. The big trend is what terrorism researchers call ungrouping, 
in which individuals need no formal organization to recruit and indoctrinate them with fringe ideas when they have easy access to them online and major political figures endorsing them. What they're talking about is remember in the days when Americans were very rightly terrified about terrorism and we were very concerned with what were called lone wolves. It wasn't that there was going to be an Al-Qaeda a cell somewhere. It was at some a lone guy somewhere or other. Sometimes it'd be a lone guy and his wife in San Bernardino, if you remember that, who uh, take up the uh, the ideals of ISIS or of Al Qaeda, and then decide to act on their own. I, I guess you could say that um, this David De Pap was a particularly uh, insane lone wolf, though <laughs> lone wolf sounds too menacing and horrible for what this guy really was capable of. And uh, then uh, what they go on to say here is they say both young, and this is that guy Graydon Young who pleaded guilty, the Oath Keeper, was part of an organization, and DePap radicalized quickly. Young became obsessed with post-election conspiracy theories in November 2020. And he was in Washington ready for violence by January 6th. DePap's online writings suggest a recent explosion of interest in far-right conspiracy theories before he showed up at Pelosi's house with a backpack full of zip ties, tape, rope, gloves, and two hammers. They also went to where he was living. They got a sword. They also had in his bag a journal that he was keeping. And uh, there's a report... Uh, by J.J. Uh, McNabb of George Washington University's program on extremism. He writes, if you comb through David DePap's social media posts and writings, his primary drivers are, number one, hatred of Jews. Well, of course. Uh, I, I was just writing a piece last night about the association of uh, conspiracy theories and no matter what conspiracy theory it is or what it has to do with sooner or later is going to try to draw in Jews because Jews are supposed to be behind every major conspiracy so number one his primary drivers was hatred of Jews by the way the Pelosi family is not Jewish no one in the Pelosi family is Jewish Holocaust denial anti-black check anti-BLM, anti-trans, anti-women. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure this guy sounds very much like he's one of those incel guys, uh, in, involuntarily celibate. Anti-communist, anti-liberal, anti-antifa, anti-mainstream media, anti-higher education, which, of which he has none, uh, anti-cop, naturally, anti-foreign aid. And his list of things that he likes, and this is from a, a detailed analysis of all his social media and his postings, what does he like? Number one, Donald Trump. Number two, Russian causes. Lovely, meaning that he'd say Trump and Putin running mates in his mind. And then he adds on Tulsi Gabbard, who also tends to be pro-Russian. QAnon, he likes. And then... Particularly recently, he loves Kanye West. He loves Ye. So Ye, 
when it comes to your audience out there, uh, crazy, violent, sick, uh, despicable people, you got them. Uh, he loves the Second Amendment, and the he loves the it's okay to be white fad. Did you know it was a fad to argue that it's okay to be white? In any event, uh, they now report uh, that... Um, from, and this is from the FBI agent who provided details. DePap stated that he was going to hold Nancy Pelosi hostage and talk to her. If Nancy were to tell DePap the truth, he would let her go. But if she lied, he was going to break her kneecaps. DePap was certain that Nancy would not have told the truth. In the course of the interview, DePap articulated that he viewed Nancy as the leader of the pack of lies told by the Democratic Party. DePap also explained that by breaking Nancy's kneecaps, she would then have to be wheeled onto the floor of Congress in a wheelchair, which would show other members of Congress there were consequences to actions. DePap also explained generally that he wanted to use Nancy to lure another individual to uh, DePap. Is that Joe Biden? Uh, none of this is particularly surprising to the people who study extremism in the United States, they say here. What about extremism by the government against revolutionary violence in Iran? We will be getting to that as well. Coming up on the MedVet Show. Michael Medved show uh, talking about political violence. Uh, some of the outrage about violent rhetoric is misplaced. I, I mean, I do think that's the case, and I try as much as possible to be on top of this stuff. And uh, the um, one of the charges that has been made is that Kerry Lake, who is the front runner for governor of Arizona, I mean, it's a close race. She's running against Kitty Hobbs, who was the current uh, Secretary of State. And I have a tough time with Kerry Lake because she's one of those people who just insists that the election was fraudulent and that needs to be overturned. And not that there's much, even as governor of Arizona, that she can do to overturn an election uh, after which the president has already served. And he served badly, but he served for the last two years. In any event, she was doing a rally, and it was a big crowd. And uh, she allegedly joked about Paul Pelosi. Now, when you actually listen to the clip, it's just not that bad. It's not the subject for outrage. It's and, and in fact, you can even see her thought processes such as they're going along. She's telling a story and she's trying to make the point that we need protection. The uh, same way politicians need protection, we need protection for our kids. We need protections in schools. Okay, so here is what Carrie Lake uh, sounded like and, and for what she's been very, very virulently criticized uh, basically all day today. Here's uh, her commentary. Listen. It is not impossible to protect our kids at school. They act like it is. Nancy Pelosi, well, she's got protection when she's in D.C. Apparently her house doesn't have a lot of protection. But 
If our lawmakers have protection, if our lawmakers can have protection, if our politicians can have protection, if our athletes, then certainly the most important people in our lives, our children, should have protection. Okay, uh, there are a lot more important people in lives, children, than there are politicians or lawmakers or whatever. Okay, it, it may not have been the most brilliant point to make, but what was offensive, the only thing that could be offensive to people, it seems to me, is the uh, uh, gales of laughter, which wasn't her whole audience. It was a few people in the audience. And, you know, they say about something like this too soon. When you read the details and some more of the details of this attack, the the attacker, David Dupap, apparently slammed Paul Pelosi in the head with a hammer. This is after the police arrived and it was not beating him with a hammer it was one blow and he was knocked out which means it's a serious head injury and i mean the fact that he had brain surgery because of this skull surgery and a fractured skull i mean can you imagine it happening to you some crazy horrible guy comes in and slams you with a hammer and it's his plan he's going to tie you up and hold you there until nancy comes there and then he's going to torture nancy and unless she admits the truth and what is the truth i mean concerning what this guy david dupap believes is the truth that nancy pelosi was part of a plot to stage january 6th and she was part of a plot to steal the election and he says that if she doesn't tell the truth, he's going to break her kneecaps. So she has to be wheeled onto the uh, Congress floor uh, where the um, I guess the next time she'll be prominent on the floor of Congress. And it probably won't be her. It'll probably be Kevin McCarthy by that time is when the president delivers his State of the Union address because that's the new Congress. Anyway, uh, the idea that... Um, basically people laugh at what even could have been near fatal for someone who is elder elderly and okay 82 it's the same age almost as Biden just a little bit older uh, Biden's 80 uh, the the idea that uh, he is being charged David DePap with lots of things one of the things he's being charged with is elder abuse uh, and uh, one of the points that is made, and it's a very important point, and he does it very well, is uh, Trey Gowdy, former congressman from South Carolina, who uh, is now a regular and I think one of the best people on Fox Network. And uh, Trey Gowdy had uh, this to say about our situation with the uh political violence that we're undergoing. Uh, listen, this is clip 12. Bones may mend and bruises may heal, but you don't ever fully recover when you come face to face with depravity. And it's become a recurring theme in American politics. Political violence and threats of violence are increasing. Elected officials have been shot at community meetings and on charity baseball fields. The children and spouses of federal judges have been shot in their homes. Supreme Court justices have been targeted for assassination. Mobs have chanted, hang a vice president. People are accosted at restaurants and in the lobbies of their workplace. And now, an attack on a family member in his home. 
For the overwhelming majority of us, the only weapons we would ever use in political discourse are the power of persuasion and the right to vote. But there is that small group so detached from reason or reality, so untethered to decency or morality, that they believe themselves justified to use violence. And when we know crazy people are listening, perhaps we should say fewer crazy things. Okay, this is very important. And I actually wish Trey Gowdy were back in Congress because he he's solidly conservative and he's a solid truth teller. He also had this story to talk about, to tell us about another great politician from American history, and we John Adams. And we should have a plan, a plan beyond simply investigating and prosecuting in the aftermath. We should do more than simply react after something violent and horrific happens. It takes no political courage to defend friends. The question is whether we have the political courage to defend, physically defend, those with whom we disagree. Before we were even a country, a lawyer in Massachusetts agreed to defend British soldiers charged with the murder of Americans. His friends told him not to do it, that it was politically unwise, that it would hurt his career, hurt his law practice, hurt his standing in the community. But this lawyer did it anyway. He did it because, as he told the jury, he would rather endure the contempt of all mankind than see an innocent person convicted or an innocent life taken. And turns out his friends were wrong. That man, John Adams, wound up becoming the president of the United States, despite the cautions of his friends, or maybe, just maybe, because he proceeded in the face of those risks. Maybe that's what we want our leaders to do. The right thing no matter what. Uh, it's powerful and it's true. Uh, John Adams' summation to the jury in what was called the Boston Massacre case, where he helped get uh, British soldiers uh, out of being accused of murder when they're just trying to defend themselves. He said, facts are stubborn things. Though they don't pay much attention to facts in Iran, not with what's going on right now. We will get to that coming right up on the Medveg. Michael Medved Show. It is a pleasure to welcome to this show uh, a very busy reporter whose beat is the uh, Middle East and particularly with an emphasis on Iran. And with everything going on in Iran right now, the Wall Street Journal is reporting. Miriam Berger, our guest, works for the Washington Post. But the journal is reporting that Saudi Arabia and the U.S. are on high alert after uh, warnings of uh, imminent Iranian attack. The uh, Saudis said Tehran wants to distract from their local protests, which have already killed. Miriam, what, what's the death toll now for people who have died in what they euphemistically call the unrest in Iran? Um, so thank you for having me. Uh, it's very hard to determine what the exact death toll is. Um, because uh, there's been widespread communication outages um, and just also huge intimidation uh, and pressure on, uh, you know, parent, you know, families of the deceased. So, you know, um, groups are working to identify how many, but we have about 
250-ish is one of the numbers used, but the numbers are likely much higher. Unfortunately, we just can't determine right now the, the true death toll. Well, they are. They announced today, didn't they, that they're putting a 1,000 people on trial for uh, involvement in the protests in the name of Masa Amini? Uh, yes, yeah, so this is sort of the first um, very, very large round of um, of, of uh, expected trials that they, they have had related to the protests. Um, these are, you know, likely to be what, you know, human rights groups describe as sham trials, where it'll sort of be copy and paste uh, charges and, um, you know, punishments. Um, there, there isn't expected to be any free trials for any uh, of these uh, detainees. Yeah, and what kind of, I mean, I know that they've uh, uh, prisoned, they have a, there's another article today about charging female journalists who helped break Amini's story with being CIA spies, and they've been held in the notorious Evan uh, prison since late September, uh, but um, what's the, uh, uh, could they uh, execute people for participating in these protests? Uh, I mean, Iran in general has one of the highest per capita um, you know, rates of execution. Um, and in, there already has, um, you know, there's right now there's sort of we're seeing the start of the prosecution process here. Um, you know, as you said, that there's been this, you know, deflection of, you know, warnings of, of, of attacks abroad that is trying to perhaps distract about what's happening uh, inside, uh, you know, accusations of being tied to the CIA and whatnot when you're just doing being a journalist is not new. Um, you know, that's happened, you know, to many, many other journalists. Um, but we're seeing, you know, in this context, it's definitely a threat to others about reporting. Um, so we don't know what will happen to these uh, two women. Um, we do know that they are, you know, jailed right now, often solitary confinement because of the reporting they did that, you know, in part, uh, you know, was com that was completely under the codes of law there and helped to uh, spark this uprising. What's the uh, most recent uh, time that uh, you were reporting on the ground in Iran? I've, I've never been there. Uh, the Post is not uh, cannot receive authorization to report there, like m much of American media. I see, because it would obviously be dangerous for you. Uh, in terms of uh, right now, the idea that Iran is um, uh, mounting some kind of a distracting attack, do you? Does that sound credible, or is that just Saudis wanting to get? Uh, the United States even more involved? You know, I, I think that um, I don't want to make any stretches here or sort of speak out of terms of what I do know. Um, you know, in general, we have seen that, um, you know, Iran, you know, blames uh, internal unrest on external uh, forces. They've, you know, uh, launched, um, you know, two strikes against um, uh, Kurdish um, communities in Iraqi Kurdistan. Um, and so, you know, this is, is in ways part of their playbook. I, I can't comment on sort of, you know, um, how much this is or isn't a threat right now. But, you know, we do know that they've said this before. And this is, is part of what they do to sort of um, in terms of the disinformation uh, internally. When we've spoken to people in the past uh, about the situation in Iran, uh, they, they do compare it to the so-called green revolution, to the unrest they had before. But there's one huge difference, isn't it, which is the age and illness 
of the supreme leader Khamenei. Uh, do you would you describe the situation in Iran as unstable, unpredictable? Is it those things yet? I mean, it, I mean, it is unstable and unpredictable. I, to what degree, we can't, you know, say now. There are no, um, you know, th there were many differences between the 2009 and, um, and you know, current unrest. Part of it is that this has continued. This is now the longest uh, demonstration that um, Iran has had continually in decades. Um, and, you know, we don't see any... Uh, signs that, um, you know, the very, very strong security state uh, and the clerics that attack um, are weakening, are going, you know, uh, they still remain very strong. They haven't used very much of their uh, repressive force that they still can. Um, so this is definitely eroded at the legitimacy um, of the um, Iranian state and government. It has definitely, um, you know, changed the country and it's and its politics and its society, to what degree this will have, uh, you know, institutional change or lead to something bigger, you know, we just can't say and, and know at this point. I, uh, I read one of your recent pieces. It was an extensive piece about the Iranian uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, which is the great unused weapon they have for domestic repression and suppression. What would it mean if they unleashed the the guard corps to uh, 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 put down this uh, unrest once and for all? Uh, it would mean a lot of violence uh, and likely a lot of death. Uh, you know, Iranians are out there protesting um, for, for freedom, um, you know, to have equality, to have, um, you know, to have change of government, to not have a repressive security state. Um, and, you know, that is a, a, you know, existential threat to the Revolutionary Guards, uh, you know, again, and the leaders that they back. And so, um, you know, based off of what we saw in 2019, when they, after just several days of protests, cut off the Internet, you know, much more than they have now and, you know, unleashed security forces, that was extremely bloody. We still don't know the full death toll. Um, and so were they to do that, that would have very high, you know, repercussions, both in terms of the human toll. Also, there's you know, that would really um, change the dynamic internally in a way that they also can't account for or control. And um, <laughs> uh, does this dissolve or go away or yield to repression at some point? And how long could that process take? You know, I'm asking myself that same question as I talk to people and as I watch what's happening. Uh, we don't know. You know, um, university students were on a strike today in several uh, universities. They've been become sort of you know a beating heart of of this uprising by continuing you know daily actions and protests, even when you know street actions may and protests you know um, uh, you know may recede a little. So they've they've kept the momentum going. You know, we've seen uh, uh, various places of. Uh, Strikes happening in mines, uh, oil workers, that's also really important. So, you know, this, this uprising is continuing to draw in new people, new communities, um, you know, new to have new forms. So, but we don't know how, you know, how long this can, can last and, and to what effect. Uh, with a great pleasure speaking to Miriam Berger of the Washington Post. And <laughs> it's, 
it, it is it is amazing to uh, think about when we're talking about political violence and threats of political violence here. There's just a candidate uh, in Pennsylvania who was attacked outside his home. And why? For politics. Uh, yeah, we have a problem here, but uh, putting uh, some background on Iran gives you a whole different perspective. Miriam Godspeed, we will be right back on the Medved Show. All right, because it is Tuesday here on the Michael Medved Show, day after Halloween, First day of November. It is Israeli election day. Uh, we should have exit polls soon uh, about what's going on in Israel for people who care. And that's an awful lot of Americans. But in any event, uh, it's Tuesday. And so uh, Jeremy Steiner proposes a twofer on Tuesday. That twofer is too un- unnecessary, uh, foolish, somewhat insipid headlines so a drum roll please maestro there it is okay yeah the first one is uh, US concerned about Iranian threats to Saudi Arabia well yeah I mean We are worried about oil supplies. We are worried about the price of gas. We are worried about the teetering economy. We're, okay, U.S. concerned about Iranian threats to Saudi Arabia and feds concerned about armed people at Arizona ballot boxes. Okay, these are not what you normally call ballot boxes. These are drop boxes for early voting. there are statistics now about the early voting which show that despite all of the concern and despite the resentment of a lot of people for the whole process of mail-in and early voting, uh, we are setting all-time records in terms of the number of early votes. We will get to that first. Uh, and this is just breaking news. In uh, Fayette County, Pennsylvania, And I don't know exactly where that is. I don't know what part of the state it is, but it's in western Pennsylvania somewhere because it's reported by Pittsburgh's Action News. There's a uh, Democratic nominee for the Pennsylvania House of Representatives who was uh, assaulted outside his home. Uh, Listen. State police confirmed they are investigating an assault outside Richard Ringer's North Union Township home early this morning. Ringer showing us the aftermath of that altercation just hours later. He had my arm back here, and he was just like pounding me. And then, you know, the only thing I had is the bruises on the hand and, and on the face. Hit me a couple of times in the head, knocked me out. Ringer is the Democratic candidate in the 51st District. He's aiming to replace State Representative Matt Dowling. Ringer says he's had three incidents at his home in the past three weeks, starting with this graffiti on his garage door. It was like, uh, your race is dead, you're next. Last week, Ringer says he came home to a brick thrown through the window to his back door. Then this incident this morning, when he says he confronted someone outside trying to open his garage door just before 5 a.m. 
Springer says the man got away and he has no idea who he was. He also says he's never had any issues in the past and he's not sure why he's being targeted or if it's politically motivated. My neighborhood is safe, it's calm, no crime whatsoever. You know, if you just try to connect the dots, maybe, but I can't say definitively. Wow. And uh, again, I know the guy's a Democrat, right? But it, it's just, it's appalling when things like that happen. And speaking of Democrats in Pennsylvania, the most high-profile Democrat right now is John Fetterman, the lieutenant governor who's running for U.S. Senate. And according to most of the polling, he has the slightest, slimmest possible lead. It's a fraction of a point. And uh, here's uh, uh, John Fetterman uh, answering, as you'll see, just brilliantly with, with great aplomb and certainty, a uh, really tough question about inflation. Uh, here's Lieutenant Gover Governor Fetterman. What do you think the biggest cause of inflation is, and should the Biden administration be doing more? No, I, I just do. I, I think the, it, that simply is also, Leah, this talk about the trillions in, in massive tax, uh, tax uh, cuts to the corporate uh, tax uh, structure is well true. You know, trillions of dollars that have added to the deficit. And, and now they still want to support those as well. True. I think in terms of being very serious about uh, addressing inflation is, is making sure that those rates are brought back into a line with what they, they should have been, uh, where they're able to uh, fight uh, the, 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 the deficit. That was unedited. Uh, do, do you understand any of it? I mean, this is this is sad uh there's a little piece by brett stevens today in in the new york times about fetterman and he says brett stevens years ago when i was in high school my father suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and his recovery took time so i felt a lot of compassion for john fetterman when he took the stage to that painful to watch debate with Mehmet oz last week on the other hand I wouldn't have recommended that my dad run for a Senate seat during his ordeal. And I'm getting the sense that Pennsylvania voters are reaching the same reluctant conclusion about the Democratic candidate. I, I, I mean, when you hear things like that, here's CNN, CNN asking the Democratic nominee about his refusal even in the light of, of all of that gobbledygook and absolute word salad uh, without dressing, uh, they ask Fetterman about his refusal to give information about his health. This is clip 15. So in the interest of full transparency for the voters, do you think it would help if you let your doctors brief the press before election night? I think we've been pretty transparent. You know, we've we've had our doctors uh, just be very clear that that they're here, that we're able to and, and fit to, to to serve. And from my point, um, uh, you know, we've been also been very transparent in terms of showing up at a debate and very transparent about you know having events in front of thousands and thousands of Pennsylvanians for for, for months. 
And I was, again, no, it was no secret that I was going to miss some words. I was going to mush some words together. Uh, and, and as we've been very clear in the debate and during, during this, this interview, I'm, I've been using captioning as well. True. I believe uh, we've been pretty transparent to give all the voters to, to make it their, their, their choice. And listen, I, I'm asking the question for the voters because then voters may, may wonder, is there a reason that you don't want your doctors to take questions? That's why I keep asking this. Oh, I, I just I just believe that we have our doctors uh, just weigh in on that and, and they believe that I'm fit, uh, to, fit, fit to serve. OK, what? <laughs> Isn't that obvious why he doesn't want his doctors to answer questions? Uh, I don't think he, he even wants to know. Uh, look, the the point is, uh the control of the United States Senate is very, very likely to hinge on this race in Pennsylvania. And in that context, uh, Dr. Oz is handling it, I think, with class and intelligence. He is deserving of support. He really is, particularly because he's making a play for the middle uh, coming down the home stretch. This is an ad decrying extremism on all sides uh, from Dr. Mehmet Oz, clip 16. I've been thinking a lot about family in the next generation. Today's kids aren't safe in our communities. Inflation's making it harder to buy a house to start a family. Guys like John Fetterman take everything to the extreme. Why are we letting murderers out? Why is the solution always tax and spend? Extremism on both sides makes things worse. We need balance. Less extremism in Washington. I'm running for Senate to improve people's lives. That's what doctors do. Okay, and uh, that's a, a good uh, approach. And the inability of John Fetterman, I mean, basically to that piece I just read to you from uh, Brett Stevens, Gail Collins answers, and she says, I don't care how inarticulate he is. I don't care if he can never give another speech, if he can't answer questions in public. I just care that he adds his one vote uh, so the Democrats get control of the Senate and get control of all the committees. Uh, right now, there are only two Republican seats that are in, in serious jeopardy, according to uh, being rated as a toss-up. One is Pennsylvania, the other is Wisconsin. Wisconsin, uh, I think Senator Johnson is moving in control of that, which, which would mean that the Republicans are not going to lose control of the Senate. They're going to have at least a tie. But for goodness sake, that Pennsylvania race is important. Uh, there'll be more perspective uh, on that and much more in this greatest nation on God's green earth.